Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, Chief Executive Officer. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. Um, We are so looking forward to our conversation today as we're going to talk with a global leader who's led and transformed organizations across a number of industries. Clark, I am super excited to meet our guest, as in my mind, he is one of the first global business leaders that's not just talked, but done something about sustainability. And I love the way he defines sustainability as businesses having to reinvent themselves to combine profits with responsible and sustainable conduct. I'm really interested to chat with him because there aren't many chief executives who've become strong chairs where they change from execution to governance as their priority. It's actually kind of rare. Secondly, he's been involved with companies that are over 100 years old. They're so traditional in culture, but yet they've undergone tremendous change. I mean, they've proven they could transform, and that's not easy for modern companies, much less traditional ones. So I'm pretty curious what the magic is here. Absolutely. Our guest today is Jim Hageman-Snabe, who is the chairman of Siemens AG, also chair of AP Moller Mayars, the shipping company, and a board of the trustees of the World Economic Forum. And in fact, he chaired the chairman, if you will, uh, at the World Economic Forum. As you probably know, he was the co-CEO of SAP. He's an author, co-founder of IDNEA, and on a variety of advisory boards, We'll get in a little bit more of that conversation, but he has redefined, literally, different aspects of leadership, where he was at SAP, Siemens, and Mayersk. Leaders around the world seek his opinion, and we are too. Jim, thank you for joining us on Redefiners. Welcome. Thank you very much, Nanas and Clark. Great to be with you today, and I look forward to to this conversation, actually. It's one of my my favorite topics. I think the world needs a strong leadership, and uh, we have a and a fantastic opportunity to create a better future. Jim, before we talk about leadership and sustainability and transformation, I actually want to start talking a little bit about you. Um, You've had an interesting start in life. You spent some of your formative years in Greenland, uh, of all places. I don't actually think I've ever met anyone who's lived in Greenland. Um, You then have had a really fascinating career path, starting as a trainee at SAP and ultimately becoming CEO you know, with, with a few chairmanships to follow. Tell us a little bit about that journey, some of the key points um, throughout the time and the key influences. In hindsight, uh, Greenland is many ways uh, defining, let's say, the respect we need to have for nature. If you grew up in Greenland, you know how much you need to respect nature. And secondly, it is a great um, reminder of the climate change that is happening right now as we speak. But if I look at my career, I would say um, I've been extremely lucky. Uh, lucky to 
uh, find a company that turned out to become a leader in its category, uh, which of course uh, means uh, plenty of opportunities. Uh, but what strikes me the most from my time with SAP, which is more than 20 years actually, is, is that SAP taught me that you can and you should reinvent the company when things are going well. Mm -hmm. Jim, as you look at that, is there a moment at SAP that was a redefining moment for you as you think about reinvention? It probably didn't start out that way, I would assume, as you were trying to make it in the company. But is there a redefining moment that led you to that? The real redefining moment for me was actually on um, a journey. Um, I was uh, invited to join a program um, that INSEAD, the business school in France, had uh, launched. Uh, it was called the Vera Quest, and it was really about teaching global leaders about globalization um, and about the environments and societies in which we operate uh, companies. And it meant uh, a week of frameworking at INSEAD in France. And then we went a week to um, India, and I met some of the richest people on the planet, some of the poorest people on the planet. We spent time in the slum of Mumbai. And, and coming out of that, I realized how important a role business leaders play mm. in solving the problems that we have on this planet. I saw a woman, 23-year-old, who had found a way to educate uh, young kids on uh, construction sites in Mumbai. And I, I realized that leader, leadership is not about the power you have, but the impact you can have. And when you have leadership, um, there is no problem that is uh, too big uh, to be solved. Uh, so I came back a completely changed person. And I decided to use my leadership in companies to help progress um, some of the problems in the world, while, of course, still making a good business. And I've, I've tried to pair those two problems uh, ever since. But I, I love what you say about leadership being about impact, not power. What's the impact that you've had that you are most proud of? That's a good question. Um, well, for me, inspiring the companies that I've been involved in, in taking a very uh, significant uh, proactive role in, in, in solving some of the problems that are related to that kind of business that they're in, mm -hmm. um, and not seeing that as a disadvantage um, or a zero-sum game versus shareholders has been probably what I'm, I'm most proud of. I, I've seen it now three times at SAP. We, we, we drove a dramatic transformation of the company towards, uh, let's say, uh, optimizing scarce resources. Um, um, I, I've seen it now at Maersk and, and Siemens, who, who both have significant um, infrastructure um, activities and, and, and adding this dimension to it and inspiring just seeing how people get inspired by when, when the purpose of the company is much more than just making money. Not sacrificing making a good business um, while you actually care for the bigger problems at the same time. Let's talk about the two uh, companies that you mentioned just then, Siemens and, and Maersk. These are 100-plus-year-old companies. And if I may say so, they're kind of European companies that are quite ingrained in their cultures. How do you bring about change in a company that has such an ingrained culture? Take us through the nitty gritty. What were the challenges? How, did you ever want to pull your hair out? How did you overcome it? Particularly, I guess, as chair. I mean, the first reflection is, of course, that um, if a company is more than 100 years, and Mask is 117 years, 
Siemens is 173 years, um, mm. which is quite remarkable these days where, where many companies have, you know, one iteration and then uh, very successful and then they disappear. I think the average um, S&P 500 life is now 16 years. Uh, so in that light, this is quite remarkable. If you have a company that's more than 100 years, it must have been able to reinvent itself many times. Otherwise, yeah. it wouldn't be around. So, so that's uh, the starting point. Secondly, both of the companies have a, an element of family business. They are not family businesses. They're both publicly listed uh, companies. But in both companies, there was not only a permission to think long term, but almost an obligation to not give up uh, the long term success uh, for a short term gain. Uh, mm -hmm. Werner von Siemens has a quote exactly like that. And, and, and one of the key values of, of Mask is taking care of today while preparing for tomorrow. So, so the question is, how do you then lead change? Well, as a chairman, which is very different to a CEO, um, you kind of have the power of asking the question. <laughs> you don't have mm -hmm. to answer it. <laughs> and, if you believe in, like I do, that if you ask the right questions in the right sequence, you can actually force the right kind of thinking and, and reactions. That if there's one thing that I would say is, is important, that challenges the assumptions that were right to create the current success, but may not be right to stay relevant and successful in the future. Many a chair has tried to manage rather than govern. It's a trap uh, for great chief executives who become governors. Jim, can you talk about the board role in transformation and then the chair's role in transformation as, as you have worked with these two companies in particular? I actually believe the board plays an important role in transformation. Um, uh, the, the best way to describe it is that, you know, early in my uh, career, I, I, I did see boards and I've seen and heard many, you know, boards where a lot of the time the board is looking in the rear mirror. We are revisiting last quarter's results before the earnings calls, and uh, we are worth smithing, you know, the quotes from the CEO, which in my mind is not a very valuable uh, um, activity for a board because the last quarter is already done. Um, mm -hmm. And and so so I believe that the board has an important role in creating space for a discussion around the future. Mm -hmm. And in my boardrooms where I chair, I have this um, an interesting um, rule of thumb, which is uh, we'll discuss the past until lunch and we'll discuss the future after lunch. Mm -hmm. And then I give, of course, management permission to decide when we have lunch, but never later than two o'clock. <laughs> um, and at the beginning of my chairmanships, the lunch was a little bit late because the tradition was to dwell a little bit at the past. And, and you know, how can you predict the future? And mm. nowadays we have early lunches because it's obvious that in these times of such dramatic change, we need to have a discussion about what are our assumptions for the future. We need to figure out what assumptions that we that led to the success are no longer valid. We need to figure out what are the capabilities that will be critical for the future, which we don't have today. And we need to make sure that, that those progress. 
I, I fundamentally believe that the board is trying to do this through four specific tasks. Number one, the board is responsible for making sure that the company has a relevant strategy. Point number two, the board needs to make sure that the company has the right management. And, and the sequence of this is important. I believe you, you need to start with strategy before you select people. And, and Clark, you will know that more than anyone, uh, because otherwise you get what the current management is capable of, not what the company will need from a strategic point of view. The third task is to have a clear definition of how do we define success. And success is not always just the results of the company. In my mind, it is also measures that indicate whether we are developing the capabilities that are critical to be successful in the future. And I call that transformation metrics, not result metrics. Mm -hmm. um, and it is as important as measuring the results, because otherwise you will optimize the current and you will become better and better at becoming irrelevant, which is not necessarily where you want to go. And of course, the last point from the board uh, is where many boards use a lot of time is to make sure that you have good governance and you are mm -hmm. compliant and manage risk. But that's not about avoiding risk. I actually believe that in times of radical change, not taking a risk is the biggest risk you can take. Listen, this is the playbook one would hope for for a company to remain relevant. As the phrase goes, don't be reverent, remain relevant. I think when we work with boards, helping the board think about their future strategy as defining their leaders for the future is one of the biggest hurdles that we face. In the beginning of the process of picking future leaders, a lot of board members are focused on today, not tomorrow. So they're repeating kind of a mirror of today's leader, not what a company is going to need for tomorrow. Can you tell us about board members who may not be as future-oriented, as relevance-oriented, and how you help manage the board process to either unify them or have the healthy debates on relevance? So the first thing I, I did when, when, um, when asked if I would chair a board is in, in both cases, I actually wrote a, a letter to the board and said, if you choose me as chairman, this is what you get. Mm. And, and that document includes my, my, basically my vision around a board that's future-oriented, not past-oriented. And it talks about how we will use committees to take some of the compliance stuff away from the joint discussions in the board. And it talks about how we will maybe even create innovation-oriented committees to go deeper in some of the experiments. And then I basically asked the board, are you sure you want me as chairman? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my experience is that even board members who were very backward-oriented or very compliance-oriented or risk-avoiding actually get inspired by the conversation you can have when it's about the future, the experiments, and the opportunities that the company could become mm. rather than the revisit of last quarter's numbers. Mm. Clark, can I actually turn the question on you? We're talking a lot about change and, and how you kind of manage through that. You've just led a, I think, I'm biased, fantastic transformation at Russell Reynolds, and you'd think professional service firms are one of the hardest places to bring about change. 
does what Jim say resonate? Is Did you implement that with the Russell Reynolds board? What, talk us through. How did you think about change? How did you transform the company? We've been through an incredible amount of transformation, and I'll answer the question and then ask Jim one that's relevant. I've got to say, we saw change as our weapon for competitiveness a number of years ago because we actually had no choice. And professional service organizations, particularly Russell Reynolds Associates, really don't like change. But it was so critical we transform ourselves ahead of the industry, we chose change as the weapon to take market share. I found that everybody bought into what we as a company had to do as it regarded to change, as, as long as it didn't affect them individually. So they're saying, great, we have to move forward as a company and as a culture, just, just don't bother me, okay? So Jim, I'm curious your reactions to a broad-based a, a focus on change, but individuals sometimes unwillingness to change, whether it's professional services or, or others, how do you manage this kind of corporate culture, corporate transformation, but also convincing individuals they have to change? Human beings uh, probably don't like change, actually. And, and if so, um, it, ideally, it's someone else who has to change. Um, and my mother taught me early in my life that if you point your finger at someone, there's three fingers pointing at yourself, uh, mm. which has always been a philosophy for me. It's like you start with yourself because only if you demonstrate your own willingness uh, will others follow. And I do believe leadership is about followership at the end of the game. You know, I often say as a joke, you know, if you're if you think you're leading and you look behind and there's no one behind you, maybe you're just out for a walk. Mm. So that's one dimension. The other one is when a company is in trouble, change is easy. Even individuals are willing to change because they know the alternative is worse. Mm. And so how do you get people inspired to change if things mm. are good? We have this assumption that if it ain't broken, don't fix it. And I'm like, well, if it ain't broken, consider fixing it, you know, experiment to find a better way. Um, and, and, and I believe that if you really want people to change also themselves, not just the organization, they need to be inspired about a future that is so more inspiring for them as well, mm. that they would change their own behaviors to get there. And so, some, so sometimes we miss the opportunity to translate strategy into something that's inspiring. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is not going to change people's mindsets. So your book, Jim, talks about sort of the three elements, the dream, the details, the platform. Um, and it sort of talks about how these elements can integrate to create the right environment where you're maximizing not just the business potential, but individual potential. Can you... It, it all sounds wonderful, but can you tell us a bit more about that? What, what does the dream, the details and the platform all mean? I think the industrial age taught us that if you want to make sure that a strategy is executed, then you have to basically cascade the strategy down in a business plan. Yeah. Because if the future is predictable, you can make the perfect plan and you can ensure execution of that plan. But if the future is unpredictable, and we've just seen 18 months of complete unpredictability, then the plan is always wrong. At least I threw the budgets and plans out for Siemens and Maersk a, a few months into COVID because obviously they made no sense anymore. Mm. And now is the time when we need something different, not a plan which kind of limits people's uh, imagination. So 
that's where the dream comes from. The dream is the translation of strategy into something that is meaningful and inspiring for the entire organization, everyone who needs to contribute. It's the why that inspires people to be super excited about change, not concerned about it. And so the details is about understanding which two or three things need the biggest change in particular. And I think that's where, you know, an organization like uh, um, yours come into a Russell Reynolds is about building the capabilities in the organization, either inside or recruiting them that will unlock the potential of that dream. Um, and many of those capabilities today are digital in nature. They are actually, I believe, more and more related to sustainability. It's about innovation. It, it's not about running the current business. It's about reinventing it. And so you need new people, new capabilities on the team. And, and now the issue is that you have a long distance between the dream which is, you know, far out there, but very inspiring. The details, which is what we do in sports. We train every day to play the game in a different way tomorrow. And that leads us to win in the dream. And between those two, we have an element. We call it um, basically the mindset and, and the framework, which is about a kind of a platform for change where we unleash human potential. We make sure they think the same things. They have the same mindset when they make their own decisions. So we don't need managers to make decisions. Then human beings have such an incredible potential to do things we never imagined, which is why it's never in a business plan. Let's take a quick break to hear from Kurt Harrison, a managing director with Russell Reynolds Associates in New York. There is a lot of talk about sustainability right now. But how much of this talk is translating into action? We wanted to understand the real state of sustainability integration into global business. So we asked more than 12,000 C-suite executives, board directors, next-gen leaders, and employees for their views on sustainability progress. What we found was a big divide between what leaders say they are doing and what employees were actually seeing in the front lines. For example, while 78% of C-suite leaders say that their organization is doing all it can to address climate change, only 53% of their employees say the same. And while 73% of C-suite leaders think their organization puts the same level of importance on environmental sustainability as it does on profits, just 48% of employees would agree. So how can business leaders close this gap? we identified a three-step plan. First, lay the foundation. Make sustainability a critical leadership requirement by rethinking the way you select, develop, and reward your next generation of leaders. Second, set the plan. Develop your sustainability strategy and make sure it is aligned with and integral to your core business strategy. Third, enable the change build true employee engagement around your sustainability vision. For those who are able to bridge these divides and drive real sustainability action, triple bottom line dividends await. To learn more about how your organization can develop best-in-class sustainable leadership, go to russellreynolds.com insights. Now let's get back to the conversation with Jim. Jim, you talk about sort of unpredictability 
Um, you talk about being much more sort of future focused. Has that changed what you look for in CEOs? I mean, we now often talk about sort of learning agility, LQ more than IQ or EQ. It, do you have some kind of framework where you use to assess future CEOs or, or characteristics that you think are now more important in CEOs, given what you've just said? Nowadays, I'm I'm looking for very different capabilities. I, actually, I'm assuming that if you are at that level where you could be the potential next CEO, you've already proven ability to execute. So, yeah. so that's not a key concern that I have. I'm looking for people who have, um, first of all, ambition. Am ambition not to do next year 5% better, but to reimagine. So that I also need people with a level of curiosity mm -hmm. um, and a level of openness to listen to others. I'm much more looking at the personal traits than yeah. the experiences. Jim, we want to pivot a little bit here and talk about unconscious bias and how that affects relationships or, or in fact, affects potential leaders. There's a moment when I personally went into a, a room at a European meeting and the person I knew best, which increasingly were male leaders in our leadership team, and a woman I respected came up to me. She said, why do you always walk to the people you know best? Have you ever thought about walking into a room as the CEO to a person you know least and what that might signal as opposed to the gang of typically men you know the best? This is obvious, Jim, I've never forgotten that discussion, and I've walked into rooms completely differently ever since she said that. You talk about finding those that have metrics focused on the future and not the past. How do you help find or, or encourage looking for people that may not look like themselves or that leaders recognize that they are only looking for people that look like themselves? How do we, how do we get out of the box and, and seek people different from ourselves? It's a, a super important question because without that, you will have a team who all have the same background and way of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I use probably um, two tricks to do that. One is I am very keen on learning from other companies, ideally in other industries. As I remember at SAP, we installed what we called a, a leader's quest where we would go out and visit other companies in, in areas that were not the same as ours. I mean, we, we assumed we were the best, so how could we learn from peers in the industry? We had to learn from other industries. Um, so as one example, um, we knew we needed to be able to acquire companies and integrate new capabilities, and we went to Cisco. We knew at SAP that we had um, not the best and most exciting user experience in the world. Um, most ERP systems look pretty awful, to be honest. And, and so we went to the gaming industry mm. and talked with them about how do you create inspiring interactions with people. I still remember at EA Games, they had this you know, mantra that they don't release a new uh, game if you don't see visible joy in seven minutes from the user. And, and I could ask the engineers at SAP, so do you think we are more or less than seven minutes to see visible joy from an, uh, our systems? Uh, these conversations open their eyes from assuming we are best to, wow, there's someone out there who just do these things much better. Mm. And of course, we couldn't look inside the company for those capabilities. We needed to look outside. 
And, and so those are some of the tricks, the openness to learn from others, but also this ability to identify what are the capabilities that we lack today, which are absolutely critical for the future, and how do we recruit them and make sure that they love to be part of our journeys. You talk about the future. We're an inflection point, I think, around sustainability. It's risen in volume, importance, and visibility in the last 18 or 24 months. And you've talked about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. At this pace, we'd probably realize them by 2090, and the goals say we got to get there by 2030. What do we do to change the pace of change, the pace of progress? We've got to. What would you, what do you, what would you do? I think um, that is probably the, the most fundamental question we, we all have. Um, and uh, I, I read the IPCC report that came out recently as well. I mean, that one is very clear. And I would, you know, just inspire everyone to read that because it talks about a level of urgency, which we have not really uh, lived mm. up to yet. <laughs> it talks about, you know, the level of impact, which is also very, very concerning. Uh, so it's almost like you, we've not seen anything yet in terms of problems in this world and we are too slow. Um, so that's the wake up call. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm assuming that the humans that need to do something about it are mostly the humans that run companies because it is the companies that have the impact we need. And to be sustainable is a competitive advantage, not a disadvantage. The political system can give us some means for that, like a price on carbon, which makes it business-wise more attractive, but we need a dramatic, dramatic change. And, and Maersk has been working on the carbon issue for a long time, actually, 2008, we started looking into this. Um, Mask is not insignificant. We're 20% of container shipping mm -hmm. and, and shipping is 90% of moving goods. So this is a very significant portion. And the goods transportation industry um, is 9% of global CO2 emissions. So an important industry to solve. And if we don't, global trade will reverse because we cannot afford it from a climate point of view. So it was obvious we needed to do something. Since 2008, we have reduced carbon emissions per container moved by 41%. So we actually asked ourselves this ambitious question, what would it take to be zero carbon? Hmm. Not carbon neutral, which is like I buy some trees, like zero carbon shipping. So in, in 2018, um, we decided in the boardroom to commit to zero carbon shipping by 2050. We were quite scared about committing to this because we did not know how to do it. I was a bit reminded by Kennedy, who also probably didn't know how to put a man on the moon and back again. And it was that kind of moment where we said, we're going to commit to it anyway. Now, three years later, we know how we are going to do it. And we have ordered the first vessels that will sail carbon neutral already in 2023, which means something that seemed impossible three years ago, now three years later, is going to be a reality. Mm. So it inspires me to argue again that leaders need to have the courage to dream big, 
And it inspires me even more to see that when human beings get such a challenge, they typically find a way. Jim, we recently did a global study where we talk to employees, next generation leaders and C-suite leaders to just compare and contrast perceptions and attitudes. And we found that the biggest barriers to embedding sustainability were slow changing culture, complexity, and a lack of drive from the senior leadership. Would you agree with those? Is that what you experienced in, for example, the Maersk example that you just gave? I think in general, uh, all three um, are inhibitors that we need to overcome. Um, I think there's, in my story at, at Mass, there was a, an element of courage, yeah. which I saw from senior leadership, which I believe is absolutely critical. And for me, the biggest part is to figure out what assumption is wrong and how do we take that out of our brains? And the one assumption that I think is wrong when it comes to sustainability is that sustainability is a cost. Yeah. It is going to be taking money away from shareholders and use it on the planet. And, and, and that assumption, I just don't think holds true anymore. You know, I often hear this, well, can we afford it? Of course, the easy answer is, well, can we afford not to? But even if we take that argument away and just look at it. How do we make money on being sustainable? At Siemens, almost 40% of the total revenue is helping other companies become more sustainable. And that part is the fastest growing part of our portfolio. Mm. At Maersk, we earn more money on a green container today already because the companies that want their supply chain to be sustainable are willing to pay the extra price. We are at this inflection point where it is just becoming better business to be sustainable. It's not a, it's not a defensive move. It's an offensive move. Jim, there's so much more that we could ask you about going down the, that, that road. Um, so we always end every um, podcast with a set of rapid fire questions. This is where we're going to, Bombard you with five questions and we ask you to reply as quickly as possible with whatever comes uh, top of mind. So I will start. What book are you reading now? Um, right now, I actually read Bill Gates' book again about sustainability. And it's a wonderful read because it makes this problem understandable for everyone. What was your first job in life ever? Like the very first job, Jim? It was a mailman in the mail, of, mail office, the post office in a village in Denmark. What did you want to be when you were a child? I wanted to become a pilot. My father is a fighter pilot. Um, and my favorite movie is Top Gun. Oh, yeah. But um, I realized that maybe I'm a better pilot in boardrooms than in a cockpit. If you could instantly become an expert in something else, what would it be? It would be AI, because I think this technology probably has the biggest promise and the biggest risk. How do we use artificial intelligence where we don't lose control? And I think this is important for leaders to understand, because otherwise, how can you apply yeah. such an important technology? Last one, Jim. Um, can you define what success means to you in five words or less? 
I can do it in one word. Go for it. Impact. Yeah. And if I add a few impact in creating a more sustainable future. Jim, an amazingly indulgent set of conversations for you to take all this time. Really appreciate it. But if we reflect a little bit, we've ended up where you started. You said leadership was not as much about power as impact. Leaders need to have impact. And you need to reinvent companies when things are going well, or you will not be able to reinvent yourself. Not taking risks is perhaps the biggest risk. And metrics, importantly, should be about the future and what we want to get done then, not optimizing present results. Stay focused on the future. You've left us with how we should look forward, not just keep thinking about today or yesterday, which is a fascinating transition, and we're incredibly appreciative. We want to keep this conversation going. We're going to focus on the future by having you come back. Thanks, Jim, so much. Clark, this was uh, truly a pleasure for me, uh, Nanas as well. Uh, I often say that we are lucky to be leaders in times of mm. such radical change. But with that luck comes an enormous obligation. Yeah. And I am very optimistic about the future we can create. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, Listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.